gold. So Trevor, I'll hand over to you. you, you you're just going to run through discussions. I mean, we had a general sort of discussion about things that are coming up animal health-wise and that people need to be aware of at this time of the year and I guess focusing around a certain number of topics. So fairly fluid, open conversation. Uh, put your questions in the chat box, reminder about that. And I'll hand over to Trevor. Okay, thanks, Gary. I think the starting point is remembering that I have yet to meet the perfect farmer. Um, so always um, we have best practice, but what you apply is always going to be what you apply relative to where you are, your facilities you've got, the circumstances, the position. And given that so many of you are coming out of a drought, that has an impact on the actions that you might need to take this year that you might not normally take. So when we look at where we are at this stage, we're in the winter, so our stock numbers are in place. Stock numbers aren't going to change much. Our stock classes are well-defined. Um, they're in systems generally. Um, so uh, so you know, the, the inputs for them, the, the timing of inputs or the need for inputs is reasonably predictable. So I thought I'd start with the um, with the ewe flock because it's one of the ones that's probably that I get most questions about once we get to this stage. So the ewe flock, um, ewe flocks are, uh, are are pregnant. A lot of them will have been scanned, um, so we know what the pregnancy status is. The thing about a ewe flock is the day that we put the ram out, we know exactly what the feed demand is going to be for the next six months, if not longer. So that that predictability uh, to me means that we should be able to be able to do a supply feed when we need to apply it because it is so predictable. The obstacle this year has been that uh, for many of you, the drought has just gotten the road of, of accumulating that feed cover going into the winter. So therefore, um, it's made it difficult to, to, to actually achieve those predictable feed that feed supply for that predictable demand. So sticking with the, the, the ewe flock and, and where that management of the ewe flock very, very interacts with what the animal health inputs might need to be for that ewe flock. Um, I think that the overwhelming um, realisation or, 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 or the thing that people, the sheep farmers need to, to think of is that ewes carrying more than one lamb become highly susceptible to a number of things once they get into late pregnancy. So if we are anticipating that feed supply to those multiple ewes is going to start declining below, well below what they need when we get into late pregnancy, <clears throat> it makes those ewes highly susceptible to, to, to um, in particular parasites. So while, while the norm might not need to put might not be to put a lot of anthelmintic support around ewes going into pregnancy. If multiple ewes are underfed going into lambing, into lambing I mean, are underfed going into lambing, they are highly susceptible to being parasitized and the impact of that parasitism can be devastating. So we've seen it in the past um, in, in new flocks coming out of out of long droughts where that feed just has not been there. We, we've seen tremendous losses. <clears throat> and that those losses are, in the end, are often due to parasitism, although that parasitism has been triggered by, by that feed shortage. So 
<clears throat> given that precarious nature or state of of those multiple use um, there are actions that we can take that that protect them just remembering that the consequences the consequences of those multiple use not being fed enough coming into lambing is and i put it in right right into the animal health bucket in that those use underfed coming into lambing will produce less colostrum they'll have an absolute cap on the lactation performance that they can achieve but in particular their lambs will take a will be a lot lot weaker when those lambs are born so therefore way way more ex exposed to what the weather is doing um, so the, the those multiple ewes i think on most farms have got to have the priority because the consequences of not feeding those multiples are, are huge so when we come back to the, the the animal health inputs into those those multiple use um, certainly i would i am advising much more anthelmintic support for those use where we're anticipating that they're going to be very limited in their feed supply <clears throat> and so we might break some rules i mean many of you know that i'm 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 not a big advocate of drink, not a big advocate of drench capsules, but when we're in a situation where um, there could be major welfare, animal welfare consequences of those ewes not being fed, um, the use of drench capsules, for example, might might be something that you do this year. And just remember, as much as we know that those persistent acting products are way more selective for drench resistance than, than, than shorter acting anthelmintics, the drench resistance status on any of your farms is a consequence of what people have done on that farm since 1964. It's not a consequence of what you did last year and next year it's not going to be a consequence of what you did this year. So this, one, of the, one of the things that I think is going to be different on a, a lot of farms because of the drought and because of the lack of feed coming into the spring that might that's going to be necessary to feed those multiples as they should be is that they will probably need more anthelmintic support um, the other the, from an animal health perspective of those pregnant ewes the other input which um, i get asked a lot is is the vaccination requirements for those use coming into lambing so the standard practices for those um, those pregnant use to be vaccinated with clostridial vaccine sort of anywhere between two and four weeks before lambing starts to me it's ideally no longer than three weeks but i could i see a lot getting away with it this being a, a, a little bit longer than three weeks um, so just remembering that um, for all uh, for multiple use, the time off feed is highly, highly critical in terms of their ability to maintain metabolic suitability in late pregnancy. So that whole process of pre-lamb treatments, I think, is often not treated with enough respect because it is a highly stressful time if we take those used, those multiple use off feed in late pregnancy. And it's not like they were going to eat the whole time that they were they they were off feed. It's, it's more that um, we've upset their routines and we know from, from uh, studies that have been done that, that just yarding those, those animals, um, the whole process of yarding them is a stressful process and, the, and, a, and a consequence of stress is that they become 
highly susceptible to the concept what look what appears to be under underfeeding. So Trevor, it might be it might be quite hard to put a time on it, but how long is too long off feed, or or how many times is too many times to bring them in in your recommendation between now and lambing? Okay, well stuff that we did a few years ago, taking bloods from ewes in the paddock when they got to the yards, and then when they came out of the yards, um, looking at the change in beta hydroxybutyrate which is a really good measure of just the energy status of those ewes. We found that even after, <clears throat> and these were multiple ewes, these were mixed age multiple ewes, that, that after two hours of being in the yards, they, they had a significant rise in beta-hydroxybutyrate from when they had, from the levels that they had when they were out in the paddock. Now the significance of that is, the closer they get to lambing, the less able the ewe is to bring that beta-hydroxybutyrate level back down to normal. And the big consequence of that beta-hydroxybutyrate level staying up is that the lambs, the lambs that are born to those ewes, are just slow to stand up. So the, the mantra that many of you will have heard me um, chant for, for several years is, that if a lamb stands and suckles within 20 minutes of being born, it's got a 95% chance of still being alive 95 days later. So, and, and the, 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 the two things that will have the biggest impact on that, the ability of that lamb to stand and suckle within 20 minutes, um, one of them is condition score, and, and ideally that will be condition score three, but by now that's gonna be hard to, to achieve that if they're below that, but the other biggie, is the, the energy status of those multiple ewes coming into lambing. So coming in, and so in, in that, that, that I, I work on 35 days, the textbook say 42 days, um, is, is in that window there, if ewes have too much of that time where they, they have in a negative energy state, they're using fat as a source of, uh, of energy, they accumulate beta-hydroxybutyrate and that has a negative, a real negative effect on the viability of those lambs when they're born. So staying with that particular time, I mean, pre-lamb vaccination is important as, and, and we know that we, we're doing that not to protect the ewe, we're doing that to protect the lamb. So we're wanting that ewe to produce, have a good colostrum supply uh, to give those lambs so they pick up that immunity. Um, so so it's, an, 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 it, it's important to get that right. Um, the product that, that some farmers are using, and I don't use, like use product. I don't like using product names, but there is no other product like it, and that is Novax Five, which is a, a five-in-one vaccine mixed with Levamazole. And and the strange outcome of uh, administering five-in-one in combination with injected Levamazole is, is a much much bigger um, antibody response to that vaccine, which enables that vaccine to be given even earlier, even a longer time before lambing and still get that same protection. So it is it is shown to be able to be given six weeks before lambing and still have that, um, give that protection to the lambs. Um, I'm just thinking back, I'm just thinking through the other things that lab, that that use might be um, be, be given at this time of the year that will impact on what they do in the spring um, and, and the, 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 probably the other one that, the, that we see is copper. So those areas on those farms that are particularly low in copper um, and where we have a history of getting sway back in lambs 
um, in the spring um, for that for that to be prevented any copper into the use to prevent that needs to be given um, around scanning time or soon after scanning giving it just pre lamb is too late to give them that protection <clears throat> so how can you if, if someone doesn't know their copper status trevor what's the easiest way or simplest way of is it, is it too late now to do some testing well it's not but it, yeah well it's i mean i've i do a lot of liver biopsies copper's stored in the liver so that's the storage tank the tank is 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 filled up um that's that's where it's stored so if we're able to get a, a, a piece of liver um, that tells us how full the tank is and how likely so therefore we can tell how likely it is the tank to run out so if we liver biopsy some use um, coming into scanning which is what I, I, I like to do um, we have a um, 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 we have that measure of how full the tank is and therefore number one whether we need to give copper but also how safe it is to give copper it's very easy to kill sheep with copper so we don't it is, it is dangerous to be giving sheep copper if we don't know that they are likely that they are deficient or that they're likely to be deficient i think it's also it's worth remembering that after a dry season we tend to have higher copper levels than we after we've had a wet summer so we have had a dry summer so i'm finding copper levels uh, of anything in use are a bit higher than they normally would be that's not a reason not to to monitor I guess the other the other bit while I just while on that trace elements when we look at trace elements we can look at a whole we, we get bombarded farmers get bombarded with a whole lot of stuff um, the, the the trace element which has that we know has has a a, a significant effect on that whole reproductive performance of sheep and cattle um, first of all is selenium we know selenium deficient use will uh, will have a lower ovulation rate than those that have got sufficient selenium but also when we look at that pre-lamb treatment lambs that are born to use that are selenium deficient will be weaker at birth so therefore have a higher chance of not surviving particularly if it's bad weather so selenium is, is a trace element which we do have a lot of science around we do know the consequences of of um of use not not having enough selenium and um, an easy way of supplementing use pre-lamb is using salinized 5-1-1 vaccine which with that injectable selenium will, will certainly last into lambing and, will, will, and it is effective in, in um, reducing that lower, lower viability of those lambs born to those use. So is there any risk there with the, if you're not quite too sure, about the status of selenium, is there any risk they're using a say salinized five and one if you've say, for example, put selenium with your autumn fert or if you drench the ewes last time with salinized drench or those sort of things? I mean, is, is an easy answer for that, Trevor? Well, there isn't. I mean, I've over these years I've seen lots of cases of selenium poisoning. Um, but in the, every single one of those cases it's, there has been a lot of excess selenium given. So um, when we look at the, the effect of, of, of selenium prills on, on herbage selenium, it doesn't lift the level of herbage selenium massively. It just lifts it up to, to um, relatively modest levels. Um, and 
that in combination with a salinized pre-lamb vaccination, I don't believe there's any risk. But but um, I wouldn't like to be I wouldn't like to be giving much more selenium than that pre-lamb without maybe entertaining you know, without there being some risk. Um, so yeah, um, these uh, the the questions that come through. Do we want me to just address those now? Yeah, can you see that, Trevor, that question yeah. around um, copper samples, is it all right to take those from dry use sent to the works instead of biopsies? Yeah, it is. It's, it's a bit, it is um, in that they represent what that, that um, they've had a, probably a lower copper demand. So I always look at those dry use and think, well, the pregnant ones are probably a bit lower, but they are a, a useful sample. The difficulty with that, or just be aware with that, that copper, if it gets too late, that copper doesn't have a very protective effect against those that, that, that like sway back if, if, if those users are very deficient. So it's, it's, it's important to get that copper in relatively early. Um, so if users are scanned and the, and the dries take a while to, to, to go and then there's some time getting that result back, um, it, it may be too late. <clears throat> Okay, the other, so just moving off um, pregnant sheep uh, and, and maybe look at pregnant cows, um, the, 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 there is a bit more safety in cows that we, that we tend not to put more than one calf in them and that, that does make them a lot more flexible. So we are, we're able to work cows a lot more, cows are allowed to cope with a lot more under, under feeding if needed over the winter. Um, and, but certainly if they've got more than one calf in them, that, that doesn't work. The thing with the cows is they are workhorses on a lot of farms. They become a flexible stock class that, that gets underfed when, when the, the feed's not available. And I'm sure that's the case on a lot of farms this winter, where there's just no excessive pasture has been taken into the winter that normally would have been the diet for the cows. Not a particularly good diet, but enough. And a lot of farms, that diet's not there. So I think a lot of beef cows are going to struggle. Um, are going to struggle this year, this winter, because there's just not a lot to eat. So when we look at ahead of the of 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 the consequences of of that continuing a date for the calendar, just as I have for the multiple use, 30 days before calving, we need to be feeding those beef cows so they don't continue to lose weight. If beef cows lose lose weight going into calving, all outcomes from that calving are compromised. They produce less colostrum, they have a lower lactation curve, and their calves are less viable. So in terms of saving those, getting saving those pregnancies in, in cows 30 days before calving is is a, is a date to be thinking, right, what doing whatever to to, to avoid those cows um, continuing to lose weight because I'm sure that for most beef cows they will have been losing weight. Um, trace, trace elements. Um, um, the lost my theme. The trace elements. Th those cows are also um, their reproductive outcomes are influenced by, by selenium. So selenium is important for, for breeding cows as well. 
So we're moving away from pregnant stock and looking at our at our growing stock. One of the things that we're seeing, and you know, I see there's some some other vets on that are listening to this. I'm seeing some most bizarre worm challenges in, in young stock um, as, as coming out of this drought and seeing levels of parasitism that we just would not expect to see even in two-year-old cattle, which I can only put down to a, a, a consequence of the, uh, of, the, um, of the drought changing, I think both. One, it's, it's changed the behavior of the worms, but also maybe a lot of animals have had such a low challenge for a long time because it's been so dry that their ability to repel um, uh, worm infestations is, is reduced. Combine that with, with worms that have really uh, come to life from the rain <clears throat> and, and uh, are causing quite major worm outbreaks in, in youngish cattle. So drench intervals that might be extended in, in, in young cattle and even lambs as we go into the winter. I think this will, you need to be cautious that this winter that might be risky to be doing that. And it's a, it's a good time to be doing some monitoring to, to really check that, that, that where you might have been extending drench intervals, you might, it might not be the time this year to do it. It's, 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 I'm seeing some really strange things happening. I was with two-year-old cattle yesterday um, on a station that would normally not drench cattle beyond maybe yearlings, maybe 18 months. And, and they developed a, a significant Ostatagia challenge, um, which for that farm they've never seen before. And it's certainly this time of the year unusual to see. So, so how the, how's that sort of, what's the, your best advice about how to pick up or monitor or be aware of that, Trevor? Okay, well, for young animals, um, I mean, fecal egg counting is still valid. Um, you know, even even for um, calves at this stage, I mean, there's a whole lot of talk that fecal egg counts in calves are, you know, of limited use. Well, for, for calves, they still are, still give you an indication. And even now for calves, uh, and we do a, did a fecal egg count on calves six weeks after um, their previous drench, and they had egg counts of two and three and 400. I'd be certainly... Um, using that as evidence that, that they are still under significant challenge. Um, when we get to cattle that are a year older, where we not, might not be expecting um, to have uh, worm problems, more than often or not, it's going to be a visual trigger. We're going to see something that tells us um, something's, something's amiss. And I guess that's where regular weighing actually is a very good, uh, gives you a very good, very good insight into what might be going on. So one of the weighings, one of the uses of weighing that I, I, have, used, I have been using for a long time is um, we obviously use weighing to look at live weight gain, but using weighing to, and looking at the, at the spread of the live weight gains. And I'm very, always very wary once I see a, a live weight gain pattern where I've got a bigger spread, I've got a more cattle growing slower, even though the average live weight gain might not have dropped that much, but there's been a big increase in the spread of live weight gains, to me is very often an indicator of a, of a, of a parasitism problem that, that um, is having its impact. <clears throat> so, so how, you know, how regularly, I know every, every farm's different in different situations, but I mean, how, how regularly should people be weighing? Oh, well, it's interesting with the dairy heifers farms that I work with, where they've got to weigh them every month. It's amazing how that 
information is useful in reflecting on where you're at and what's happening. And and to me, it, um, I think that there's a potential to be getting a lot more information out of more regular feed uh, weighing than than probably is is the case. And the dairy heifer grazing ones are the ones that, are, to me, have really demonstrated that that power. The requirement is that they're, they're weighed every month. So every month we get this live weight gain sh um, pattern. And I look at the spread of that live weight gain and, and um, I find it very useful information to reflect on the, on, on the feeding and what they have been feeding, but also interpreting it as triggers for maybe the need for some other intervention, such as a worm treatment. Um, okay, so we've gone through those. Uh, you know, coming back to, to lambs that are still on the farm, so pregnant, uh, pre um, pregnant hoggets, pregnant or not, it doesn't matter. Um, as I said before, um, some of the worm challenges that they're getting, that I'm seeing in those, um, have, have been an unusually high for this time of the year. It's interesting, I just heard that a bit of a chat before we started on this. Um, I'm dealing with a farm in the manor too that is losing bulls on uh, Italian ryegrass from nitrate poisoning. Um, most unusual to be getting nitrate poisoning this time of the year. And similarly, those levels those levels have stayed up high um, for for now for almost three weeks. And I'm always I'm always aware that of the dangers of nitrate poisoning, and always we know that animals can cope with very high levels of nitrate in their diet um, if they are adjusted to it. But when we've got levels that are very high, it, 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 if we haven't got very very even feeding, it's so easy for animals to to, to die. And I haven't been to the manor two for a few days, but presume it's been sunny because certainly sunny days uh, as is. Sunny days are um, will have the impact of reducing nitrate levels. Levels nitrate nitrate in leaves will gradually reduce just with time. And you'd think it, you would think that nitrate levels are not increasing now, although it's warm warm enough that maybe they are. And but and 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 um, it, it is sunlight which will have that protective effect and reduce the reduce the levels. Um, I just just jump, jump and just put a, I guess a plug in there, Trevor. Your t I spoke to Hamish from your team about one of my clients and really concerned about it. And I've been testing some uh, Italian ryegrass, and you know, I was, I was you always sort of start to think about the cost and return. What is it, fifteen dollars a test? I thought it was the cheapest bloody insurance you could possibly do, and they've been regularly doing it. And yeah, if they'd started grazing that new grass two weeks ago when we talked. I'd say we would have lost a whole lot of animals or would have lost performance. So, yeah, they've probably spent $100 on testing in the last two or three weeks. But, yeah, the cheapest insurance you could possibly do, I would have thought. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, it's, it's very costly if the first indication of that problem is when, that, when you've got dead animals. But then, I mean, this time of the year, um, most unusual to be seeing nitrate poisoning. So let's sort of run through the major stock classes. Um, the, um, and, and so I, I think we can progress from here very much with, 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 with questions. 
Yeah, sorry, I had some technical issues there. I just had to jump off and jump back on as my laptop froze. So I've missed the um, the previous questions that were there. But I think, Jason, did you get on and cover those off? Yeah, there was just that one question there around um, taking the biopsies from dry use was the only one that had come through in that time. Okay. That's good. Sorry, just the potential technology issues. The other disease that, that we might expect to see um, parasitic, parasitic disease that we might expect to see more than we might otherwise this year is liver fluke. So typically um, after dry seasons where stock have grazed into wetter areas because they've been able to have access to them, um, they, they, they can get access to picking up liver fluke. Um, and, and not that I'm seeing that as yet, but it, it, it is something that you we would wouldn't be surprised to see as a consequence of a of a dry summer dry autumn purely because animals have been able to graze into into wetter areas where the snails live that they might not have ordinarily been able to do so the important thing with liver fluke is if you've got properties where that is you know that liver flukes about the animals that will suffer most as a consequence of having liver fluke are pregnant animals Growing animals can get away with quite a lot of liver damage, but still have enough liver to, to grow all right. But a, a pregnant animal has a much, much requirement for a, a full healthy liver. So, um, so a, a, a pregnant ewes, even pregnant cows, the biggest losses I've seen with liver fluke um, infections has been with, with pregnant cows going down a late pregnancy due to, to, to liver fluke. So your, preg your pregnant stock are the ones to be sure that they aren't carrying uh, liver fluke loads. It's difficult to diagnose liver fluke, level of liver fluke infestation. Um, and, and in a lot of cases, it's more uh, reflecting on past experiences, last uh, past evidence of, of liver fluke because the expectation rightfully could be that after these dry seasons there, there, there could be there would be could be more liver fluke than normal. So when we look at liver fluke treatments, liver fluke now will all be mature. They'll all, they won't be any immature. The matures are much easier to kill. So there's a much a bigger array of products which can be effective against uh, liver fluke. It doesn't have to be the super expensive ones that, that are effective against the larval stage or the early stages. The liver fluke will be mature, so um, they're relatively easy to treat. So, so you, you mentioned that that's uh, very hard to, to diagnose. Is that is that that the, the faecal egg count testing is not really reliable, or what, why why is that such a challenge? Well, yeah, faecal egg count, um, the lab, the the liver the liver fluke count is, you know, certainly it tells you the presence, but it's it's reliability in terms in terms of representing level of infestation is you know, is a little bit suspect but i guess if you found lots of fluke eggs um would be pretty diagnostic of lots of fluke um yep so a, a, a way of of, of uh, finding out whether there are fluke there uh, would certainly be to a fecal fluke count um and and the accuracy of that would be increase significantly by doing more than your standard 10 because the the egg output from those flukes fluke is, is, is not regular so you, you get a 
a, a variation in egg, egg output um, that's just due to the nature of the parasite, whereas our roundworms tend to just just merely lay eggs willy-nilly and we don't ever take into account that some, some parts of the day they might be laying less one part of the day than another. Okay. Well, there's, a, there's a question just popped up there, Trevor. What are the shortest times between treatments of copper injections and BVD vaccination and a pre-carving copper injection? Um, well, the copper one depends totally on your copper status. Um, you know, the, the, uh, there are farms in New Zealand that don't need to give their cattle copper, and there's farms in New Zealand that need to give their cows or their cattle copper on a very frequent basis. So uh, without information about copper status, I can't answer that question. Um, it is totally about knowing what the status is. Um, and and um, yeah. Pre-carving, I, th I think it's, it, well, we, we know we don't see any negative outcomes from that standard pre-carving copper being any time in the, in the two months leading into carving, getting that copper treatment as a, as a, as a, as a pre-carving pre or spring treatment. Um, so I'm not too fussed about the, the timing of that, but relative to previous treatments depends totally on, on the status. Yeah, I, I'm just looking at that question, I'm just wondering, is it the impact about the BBD vaccination and the copper at the same time? Oh, yeah, that's a one to be very careful about. Um, <laughs> with all copper injections, the recommendation is that they're not given with anything else. And, 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 and so that's what we certainly should, should be following. I know that an awful lot of copper is given at the same time as other things. Um, but we've got to be careful, particularly with with vaccines, because some of the vaccines have um, have quite a, a, a dramatic effect on on the on the immune system and how the immune system is behaving, which somehow might interact with copper. So I, I'm just very cautious about administering copper injections at the time of anything else. So when we look at the timing of those things. That BVD vaccination pre-carving, which might be being given to particularly to two-year-old heifers, but it might be being, being given to cows. Um, um, it's not critical just when that is, as long as that, that vaccine, that immunity has been boosted uh, going into the spring to give them protection at that next mating. And I guess to some extent that the timing of that copper injection is not absolutely critical either. Um, it's, and so I think it's quite possible that uh, pregnant cows could be given those two treatments separately and, and still be totally effective. But what you just say, what you say is it's about that status is probably quite important to understand. So. Yes, it is. And again, when we're looking at status, coming back to what I talked about, copper, liver is just so important in assessing copper status. If we're going to use bloods, which I've been, I see being used too much, um, the blood level, the level of copper in the in the blood will be low when the liver has run out. So when the tank has run out, the blood will be low. So we we um, by the time we find it low in the blood, we're already in a in a deficient state that the, the storage tanks run out. That's why I just love livers so much because they tell you exactly how where you sit in terms of the overall uh, copper status. So, you a question, the question there from 
sorry, a question there from Alan. Um, how useful are fortified salt licks in improving sheep's metabolic needs? Well, they're highly important because if they make you feel good, they're really important, but they probably do absolutely nothing to your sheep. But if it makes you feel good, that's really, really useful. I'm being cynical there. I haven't got much faith in, in, in licks of any sort other than maybe just straight salt. So rock, rock salt on some farms um, in terms of, of, of building more stable meta, a more stable metabolic state um, and where we have got sodium deficiency, uh, just plain ordinary rock salt. But the other bits that add into, into salt block, into lick blocks, um, I think are just largely a waste of time. Waste of waste of money because we do see situations where we put those salt licks out and we know that the animals go for them, um, you know, and they can and they can demolish them. But that's not a straight indication of a deficiency or risk, is it? Well, it's, it's only yeah, it's, a, it's an indication that they want salt, nothing else. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So just be, there's this misconception that because animals like something, they need it, but that's not necessarily the case. My, my children quite like potato chips. Yeah, okay, okay. Same thing. <laughs> but so in terms of the trace elements that come into those salt blocks, you know, you, you, your magnesium blocks and your copper blocks and those sort of things, it, it's, not, it, it's not a significant amount of trace elements, is it, to make a big difference? No, well, no. Using blocks to, as a trace element supplement is totally ineffective. Yep. Absolutely ineffective. The question here, um, should you be, uh, from Cam, should you be giving Zolvix and carryover lambs to clean out worms? Now, I think when you say carryover lambs there, Cam, I'm assuming you're meaning dry hoggets, or is that lambs that you've still got on board that you haven't killed yet? I guess they're essentially the same age, or just, just what title you put on the head. Yeah, because, I mean, this time of the year, the, the value of Zolvix other than it being used as a, as a quarantine treatment, is there, there is not value of using Zolvix specifically now um, in, in lambs that are already on the farm. So that clean out uh, drench that's been recommended as one of the tools for minimizing the selection of a drench resistance um, of, of giving Zolvix or StarTech or one of those products in, in the autumn is all about influencing that worm population being taken into the winter. But we've lost that ability to have that effect now, so there's no value in that, other than if it's for treatment of new lambs coming onto the farm. And it's interesting, as we get these warm winters, I think some of the stuff changes, because usually in the winter, we're not, we, worm activity has really slowed down. Um, temperatures are, are, are are generally too low for the free living stages to, to progress from the eggs, is, eggs to hatch for the larvae to progress through their stages to L3s. Um, and, and that's the direct consequence of the temperature. And, and as we get warmer, I just wonder whether we, we can't rely on that being to the same extent as, as it has been in the past. Yeah, it seems it seems that this is not the first warm winter we've had in the last few years. Maybe maybe the people that talk about climate change could be real, but the impact of having these warmer winters, you're saying that the, the bugs and it's the worms are more active, and and normally when they get their slowdown period, they just don't get that slowdown. They can keep going all the way through. 
Yes, well, the, 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 attrition, the attrition of L3 larvae over the winter, we've always recognised as an important in, in putting a bit of a cap on what we have coming into the spring. Um, but, but maybe as it's warmer, we won't get that level of attrition. And, and the consequence could be that we've actually got development over the winter, which will mean a high level of L3 larvae going into the, into the spring. But then on the other hand, warmer winters, the lifespan of the L3 larvae will be shorter. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it, it, it could, could go either way. One of the things you're saying there is that whether as the seasons change and we have warmer winters or colder winters or wetter summers, the, the certain the cycle, all the cycles of all the worms change. And so we need to be aware of that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But then, on the other hand, when we, as a consequence of that overall changes, that we're going to can very often, if not always, get drier, drier summers or in particular dry autumns. The consequence of that could well be that we're taking lower worm levels into the winter. A lot of, a lot of changes. A lot of things interact with one another. We can't just assume one outcome um, from one thing. There'll be there's a lot of interaction. Okay. I just got a question and I might have missed it when I jumped off and jumped back on. You talk quite a bit about the multiple use and how you need to manage those. Yeah. Um, and so I'm, I apologise if I've missed it, but just thinking about um, in lamb hoggets and dry hoggets, I guess the in lamb hoggets are a, a real concern as well. Any comments? You say, I say you might have covered it, but just a question about that. No, I didn't cover hoggets at all. So you didn't miss that out, Gary. So you can ask that question. Um, well, that's good. I'm allowed to. Yes. Uh, well, certainly the same applies. So, uh, the safety for the hoggets may be is that they're they are lambing a bit later, so that, that increase in feed demand is, is a bit further on when we might be getting some more feed cover. But certainly with mated hoggets, they do need to be fed, and mated hoggets need to grow through the winter. And, and I, always, I always work on the, that they need to grow from mating through to to, to post scanning at least 80 grams a day and, and ideally more like 100 grams a day um, to, to, for them to grow their frame. They've got to grow their frame over that pregnant, their first pregnant winter. So they do need to be fed. And the consequence that we're going to see on a lot of farms that have mated hoggets is that hoggets won't get fed. They're, they're going to get through a lambing probably with poorer lamb out, lambing outcomes because they haven't been fed. And, and they will have a smaller frame size for the rest of their lives. And we look in a lot of flocks that are in areas that are, are drought prone, there'll be age, there'll be an age class or two in the flock that are a smaller frame size. And that'll be a consequence of when they were a lamb and they were having their first pregnancy, they were underfed. So it, it puts, a, puts a cap on their frame size that they, they never really make up from. And again, in terms of the, the worm treatments and, and being aware of them, uh, is is there much difference between, um, you know, hoggets that are having singles or hoggets that are having twins compared to what you talk about with the ewes? Or do you just treat them all as, as high-class animals? Uh, my dilemma with hoggets is that I have is that I because I have the luxury of going to seeing a whole lot of systems, I see high-performing hoggets systems that drench their lambs pre-lamb, and drench their hoggets pre-lamb, they drench them again at, at, at tailing, at docking, and they might drench them at weaning and, and, and get good outcomes. And I get, 
obviously other farms that 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 appear that if they didn't use drench capsules on all their pregnant hoggets or lambing hoggets that uh, you know, they get really poor outcomes. So there's a real interaction between on on this with, with hoggets. To me, there's a real interaction between number one feeding level, number two, um, the status of the farm. It's going to be very different from an 80-20 sheep cattle ratio farm to a 50-50 sheep cattle ratio farm where there's integration of stock. So it's going to influence the level of challenge. I suspect at that stage, the ge genetic background of those sheep are going to influence on their need to have um, into, you know, big, more intermittent um, support around lambing time. So with hoggets, I know, um, you know a, a lot more. They, they, they are young animals. They're going through a lot of stress at lambing time. They are almost always going to need more anthelmintic support than you might give their older sisters. Um, the intensity of that, I think, is very much dependent on your system, on, the, on where they're lambing, what the, the parasite status of where they are lambing. If it's part of an overall sheep system, they're going to have a much higher worm challenge than they are if they're in a, on a system that, that, that is largely not always used as a, as a young sheep system. So again, it's a decision. If, if, I, don't, I don't think we should be making a decision just as simple as if they're lambing hoggets, they need to have a capsule. I think we need to be thinking of, of, of what are the risks that might um, require them to have the level of support. Remembering that no matter when we use capsules, capsules are more selective for anthelmintic resistance than using short-acting products. There's no question of that. So if we're using them in, 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 in hoggets, how do we provide enough refugia around them to minimise that selection consequence of using um, capsules? <clears throat> the, the, and so, you know, the, the, the refugia tools that you might choose to use around there are, are, are maybe only doing the twins and, and not doing the singles, but to have that refugia effect, they've got to lamb together. There's no point in doing one and not the other and lambing them separately. Um, it could be that you just um, leave a bundle of, 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 of them not done. And how many you need to leave to have a refugia effect, you really don't know but I would suggest it needs to be at least 10% if we're using capsules in hoggets. Um, what I see being used on some farms is that um, tail end non-pregnant new hoggets uh, are not drenched and are run with the, with the capsuled hoggets as a refugia tool. Um, just how effective they are as refugia, it's a bit hard to gauge because they'll have a, a rel they'll have actually have a very low egg output compared to the pregnant ones or lambing ones, which will have a higher egg output. So really the warning is no matter when we use those persistent acting products, we have to be using a lot more refugia around them to reduce the, the intermittent selection um, consequence or power of using those products. And you talk about those the dry hoggets, and I guess in a situation where someone's getting a reasonably good scanning level from their hoggets, I always think to myself, if you if you if you put your empty hoggets, your dry hoggets, 
out in their own mob, often they get pushed a bit too hard and treated like a second-class citizen, and it's another mob. Whereas one of the advantages you're saying there is actually just leave them all together, and then it adds a bit of refugia. The only risk there is about the amount of feed that you feed them, but yep. you get other benefits from that, and maybe there's, there's more management benefits. Yep. Yep. So you're right. But again, we're coming into a spring that for lots of farms, feed is going to be short. And, and, and the number one priority is feeding, feeding our capital stock as well as we can to get the outcomes that we need to get from them. So while I say that the ideal would be that we might have, the ideal that we have to provide a whole lot of refugia around those lambing hoggets, that have got capsules in them this year where that the spring might just not have enough feed and really it's going to compromise those pregnant ones by having dry ones, untreated dry ones in them. I'd suggest this year, this is the year, this is the year you make a compromise and 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 maybe not do that. But on a long-term basis, we have to be providing refugia in, in our in our with our anthelmintics and in particular where we're using persistent acting products that that the level of that refugia needs to be that much bigger. But if, if that's really gonna create a feed shortage, maybe for this year, that, that, that has to be one of the compromises. You get around, I mean, since, you, since we've been allowed out, you get around a number of farms. You know, you talk about the feed situation is short. Do you, do you wanna cover that off a little bit? What you're seeing out on farm, Trevor, say compared to what you'd normally see in late June around the countryside compared to what it is today? Um, mostly, well, in the in the North Island. I mean, last week I was in, down in Otago Southland, and, and that's not their problem at all. But for the North Island, most North Island farms that I'm seeing have got pasture covers that are probably three or four hundred kilograms of dry matter per hectare below where they should be. I mean, I was on a farm this morning, Central North Island, where average farm cover was just twelve hundred. Um, they have got lots of supplement which will allow them to get through. They would normally just their feed budgets and what we've measured in the past. Now they'd normally have feed covers of around sixteen to seventeen hundred. This year, though, it, it was it was bald and absolutely no rough feed at all. Um, so in general, there's a lots and lots of farms that are, are short of cover. It's interesting when we look at pasture growth rates and how much pasture how much pastoral growth rates are, are, are very, how varied they are between farms. And I think we're looking, when we look at now, we look at the consequences of how people manage the dry and its impact on what pastoral growth rates are now. So farms that, that on, on, on farms where uh, animals were kept on rotation, were kept moving, and so they're, they're limiting the amount of overgrazing we have got much higher pasture growth rates than on farms where gates were opened and animals were left to, to in effect to, to roam. Because the consequence of that is, is high levels of overgrazing, which has a really negative effect on that pasture's ability to respond when the when the when the rain comes <clears throat> and and uh, allows the pasture or can can allow pasture to grow faster. So that is one of the reasons why I'm seeing a big difference in pasture growth rates over June. We've been blessed by 
a good chunk of the of June where weather has been good enough to grow pastures, but that difference in pasture growth rates is still there. Uh, that is a reflection of how those same pastures were grazed when it was dry. Overgrazing is probably the biggest cost in our pastoral grazing systems to us grazing uh, to our, to us growing more more feed on our farms, and it doesn't just apply to when we've got growing feed. It applies equally to when we're um, when feed is not growing and it's short. There's still biological activity going on in those pastures, even though they are dry and they are still prone to being overgrazed um, in, in those situations. So, yeah, I, I, I actually see we're going to have some real problems. I, I'm, as scanning results coming through, people are seeing what they've got. <coughs> the safety is that a lot of scannings are back, so there are less multiple use, but those multiple use on a lot of farms are, um, are going to struggle to be fed. And I think it's really, really important to be identifying those those multiples, getting them out and, and setting up feed systems to know that, that that they can be fed coming into lambing or the consequences can be can be, can be very bad. Um, there are patches around the, the North Island where we've got lots of feed, but in general, um, the, the, the feed situation is short. And I know that <clears throat> when it's dry, it's very easy not to feed budget, and it's actually when you feed budget and you when you're feed budgeting at a time when pastures aren't growing and you're feeding lots of supplement, it might seem um, it might seem to be a waste of time. But having feed budget systems in place that that can sort of step in once you start growing pasture is still very valuable in predicting that what's ahead and trying to get some handle on what you might have to do to, to get into a better situation. And always when we have these extreme situations like the drought that we've just had, it's all about compromising, it's all about minimising the level of loss, not trying to avoid the loss, but minimise the, the level of loss. And, 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 and doing feed planning and looking at what you've got and what's ahead, how much nitrogen you might need to apply, how much you need to destock, how much you might have to slow up the bulls to create more pasture are all tools that are much easier to utilise if it's if it's all part of, of feed budgeting. And there's a whole variety of feed budgeting tools that you can use, but it is, it is still, a um, it would, regardless of what ones are being used, um, they, they are still useful. And I'd argue that they're more useful the shorter the feed situation is. There's a question there about, um from Cam, what, what sort of optimal cover at lambing, what, what's an optimal cover and how can you rectify the deficiency? Yes, there's a pretty big question in there, but hopefully you get something from that. Mm. I think we've been miss... I think our messages around lambing have been um, missed the mark and there's been a whole focus on lambing covers what should what should use what sort of pasture cover should use lamb on and to me that's a that's a, a question there, there is no ideal cover that you should lamb on to it depends on on a number of things it depends on when in the spring you lamb if you lamb in the, 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 the beginning of um, 
uh, beginning of August that, that, that lambing cover needs to be different than if you're starting lambing at the end of September. It depends on how long before you set stock before lambing is. So if we're set stocking three weeks before lambing <coughs> starts, that so-called lambing cover has to be different than if we were set stocking five days before lambing. And remember that for those multiple ewes, it's important, it's more important that they're fed coming into lambing than what they lamb on. A multiple ewe can use body condition to drive early lactation. There's a limit to how much she can use body condition to drive late pregnancy. So managing the allocation of that feed to, to, to be feeding those ewes enough, then it might not be quite enough, but getting as near as to enough as you can get and getting them close to lambing, that lambing cover becomes less important the closer we can manage it, the better we can manage that allocation of feed coming into lambing. I think it's, I, I think it's the hardest bit of the whole sheep calendar to get right is, is the management of feed um, and allocation of feed of, into those multiple ewes as we come into lambing. So lambing covers to me are, are, are there's no ideal lambing cover because it, it is it depends on the situation that it, that is surrounding them as to what that cover needs to be. <coughs> and if we have a compromise, to me the comp the compromise is if we can't have have feed coming into lambing and feed at lambing, I'd rather see the ewes getting the feed, there's multiple ewes having the feed coming into lambing rather than having it, rather than being underfed coming into lambing just to have pasture covers at lambing. And that again, then the, the, the effect of that depends on, on how tight that lambing is. If we've had our ewes divided up into 10 day lambing groups, um, so we can have even tighter control over the allocation of feed, that lambing cover, what that actual lambing cover is becomes even less important um, if we can be refining that allocation of feed even better because we have that, have that lambing pattern data. <clears throat> Just a question, you mentioned it before about nitrogen um, as, as a supplement choice. Yeah, I mean, just, just want to make some comments about your experience around timing, soil temperatures, or any thoughts that you've got around nitrogen? Yes. Um, nitrogen is a very useful... I mean, I'm, I'm a great fan of, of small amounts of nitrogen, given appropriately to, to get to where we need to be. Not necessarily to drive a system, but um, again, the power of feed budgeting. With feed budgeting gives us the ability to to more effectively use nitrogen to prevent falling into holes rather than using nitrogen to get out of holes. When we're coming out of a drought, I can see another reason why some farms are, are getting very good pasture growth rates coming out of the drought compared to others. A lot of them will have applied nitrogen. There's a there's a belief or a, a thought that over the drought, <clears throat> nitrogen is accumulating in the soil which is going to trigger um, pasture growth rates once the rain comes, we will get even higher pasture growth rates by supplementing that nitrogen supply by some added nitrogen. So <clears throat> in terms of, of, of boosting that cover going into winter, I think nitrogen is, is invaluable to be better, getting into a better position of, of having enough feed to get through the winter and then being 
having the ability to allocate, control the allocation of it. With runs of the spring, um, I think it can be very difficult to be using spring nitrogen to kick in early enough to provide the pasture that we need in that very early lambing period. Um, and I think a lot of spring nitrogen applied to help a lambing system is the, the benefit is, is limited because it tends to go on too late. I'm not too fussed about soil temperature, Gary. Um, you yeah, I guess the, the question there about it goes on too late. Maybe soil temperature, do you want to clarify that a little bit more? Well, the thing about soil temperature, we know that, that grasses don't like to grow if they were below, what, below eight, I suppose, um, degrees soil temperature. <clears throat> and so the purist would say there's no point in putting on nitrogen if we've got soil temperatures at eight. But in this environment, and we look at a month like August, we will have lots of days in August when, or even in July, even in July in this, this region, we have lots of days in July when soil temperatures are above the minimum to grow ryegrass. And if we've got nitrogen in, in, as supporting in around that grass, on those days <clears throat> that the, the soil temperatures are up, we will grow a lot more grass than if we didn't have that nitrogen in there. So I'm, I, I look very much about when we want that night, when we want that feed, when we might need to put the nitrogen in to get that feed and, and, and drive the timing from there and don't get too hung up on, on temperature. I mean, if I'm, you know, we're further south and it's a lot colder, um, that is, that's a different discussion. But, for, but for, where, for us up here, I think it's less of a limitation. I guess what you're talking about is you're saying you're seeing pitches where covers are down, let's say 300 per hectare at the moment, and yep. yes, scanning might be back a little bit, but it's not going to save us because 300 is a big number. So yep. the, the importance of that feed budget is key. And I, I was going to come back to it, but I'm going to say it now because I think it's such a good point. You know, the feed budgeting, stop getting yourself in a hole rather than use nitrogen to get yourself out of it. But by feed budgeting, you can predict your holes. Yeah. So, so therefore use nitrogen to, to prevent falling into that hole. I mean, that's the ideal. And I, I don't know, nobody farms to the ideal, but that, that, that's certainly the value of feed budgeting. Because the other one, when we look at ewes now, is that if we're short of feed, the animals that have to be feed are the multiple ewes. And if there's going to be a cost, if there's going to be animals that get underfed, it's going to be the singles. So the consequences of underfeeding the singles is way, way less than the consequences of underfeeding multiples. So my ideal is not to separate twins and singles until we get closer to lambing, because it just makes those rotations less efficient. But in a year like this, where we are, anticipation is that feed will be short, um, I think it's totally valid to, to, to not follow what might be the norm and take twins out earlier so they can, so you know that they can be fed um, at the expense of the singles. This is an unusual you, year. You know, if, if you are tight and you have to underfeed a mob, you're way better off to underfeed your singles than, than, yep. than separate early, underfeed your singles, rather than leave them in mobs now and underfeed everything. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> and we talked about a couple of weeks ago with, with, with Richmond Beetham from our team about, you know, not overfeeding the fatties was his term. Um, you know, in terms of the, the knowledge of the condition score, and you know, he talked about the 
you know, not, not a lot of benefit of, of overfeeding something that's at condition score. Would you agree with those sort of statements? Well, I would, but I actually haven't seen a fat you for several months. So I don't know that that necessarily is going to help this year. But yes, and I mean, that that's your standard strategy when feed is short. But usually when feed is short, the number of fatties is quite limited to, to give you that freedom. Yeah, and so that's a so you, you know you're seeing on farms that covers are low. So I guess you've answered that question as well. There's not many. Actually, I don't know if we're allowed to use the term fatty. Maybe we should just use good conditioned ewes. You're not seeing many of those around. No, no. No, I think probably in general, new condition scores are, are back probably half, if if not more. Flock where I was this morning, they had used in ready for scanning, so I was able to put my hand on a whole lot. Um, and it's a flock that normally runs um, at this time of the year. They'd have three or three condition score three or more, and and they were running sort of between two and three, uh, the condition score on those. So we had a very good discussion around what their, their what their feeding was going to be after scanning, and so certainly my recommendation was they they separate this, take the singles off, <clears throat> to make sure they can feed the multiples. There's a question just come through there from Sophie about um, hi Trevor, any advice on prolapses? We've tried to chip off some weight off our heavies to no avail, and usually struggle with bearings. Well, many of you will have heard me say that bearings are highly unlikely to occur this year because Jupiter is not aligned with Mars. And we well know that one of the risk factors around bearings is when we have Jupiter, Jupiter aligned with Mars. Um, so we're totally safe this year because they're totally misaligned this year. I'm yet to find the person that's got the feeding regime that says we're not going to get bearings. And when we look at um, the, the limited science we have about, around bearings, and, and which would suggest that ewes that put on a condition score between mating and scanning are far more likely to have a bearing. But I think <clears throat> that condition score change in early pregnancy sets up the susceptibility or the, the potential things that we do in late pregnancy are the triggers. And those triggers might have some feeding components to it. Those triggers certainly have some um, metabolic components to them. Um, those triggers, um, there are triggers in the spring which trigger um, a susceptibility that has been set by earlier uh, condition score changes. When we're coming out of a, a summer drought, I think in a lot of flocks um, that have that have developed good feed banks ahead, use will be putting on condition from, from um, um, mating through to scanning. But whether that turns itself into bearings depends totally on um, the, the, the triggers that, that occur in late pregnancy. Um, and I, I, I mean, we could talk forever about that. So where Sophie is, um, we have some pastures through there, some soils through that area, which are naturally very high in potassium, which I think increases that risk significantly. Um, not too far from where Sophie is, um, there's, there's that farm that claims to have had a dramatic effect on reducing bearings by by applying salt 
Certainly we know that applying salt reduces the impact of highest potassiums. So there is a whole metabolic component to bearings that we haven't really, um, we haven't defined well enough to know that there's things that we can do that will make a difference. So, you know, taking weight off used to try and prevent bearings, in my experience, doesn't have that benefit, which um, that I think Sophie's also experienced that it, it isn't the saviour from bearings. Because, I mean, there's been survey work done and those sort of things, and, and there's no direct conclusion to causes, is there? It's, it's, it, we don't know the answer. No, we don't. I mean, we've done a whole lot of work on that, and I see some other people have, have, have done some work showing uh, benefits from using vitamin ADE type supplements, which are having a direct effect on direct effect on metabolic stability. But I think that's far <clears throat> far from defined to say that that's going to make a difference. 